We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which Plant Heroes was recorded, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. But everyone spoke about it and everyone told me about it and they warned me, oh, it's got this awful smell, <laughs> this pungent smell. So I suppose that might have been the thing that it intrigued me. The Tumut grevillea, as it's commonly known, is um, it's a two to three metre high shrub, uh, beautiful pink toothbrush grevillea flowers um, with a soft musky smell. It's a bit mousy if you've ever, if you've ever kept mice or have been in a lab where mice are kept, it's, it's somewhat reminiscent of that. So, well, people have different opinions about the smell of the flower, but I, I reckon it smells like mouse urine. <laughs> um, you know, unless you're really close to it, you don't smell it. So it's really not too much of an inhibition to have it as a garden plant. You probably just wouldn't have it as a cut flower inside because <laughs> of the smell. I mean, some people actually quite like it. Um, I mean, I don't mind it, but I think it is a bit pungent. Liza, put a smile upon your face. I want to see you glow, so let your essence show. Welcome to Plant Heroes. I'm Chantal, and this time we're going to learn about a quirky toothbrush grevillea called Grevillea wilkinsonii. I've heard a lot about this plant in the botanical folklore, and when I first heard of it, the mousey part really fascinated me. But I was soon to find out there's a lot more to this species than a quirky smell that maybe suggests a long-lost mammal pollinator. The area it comes from has been used for agriculture since the 1800s. It's strange for such a distinct plant to have been overlooked for all that time, particularly back when botanising new lands was a serious job. In the 1990s, it was a case study species for a new type of conservation method called recovery planning that employed, in this case, translocation, relying on the unlegislated goodwill of private landholders to make sure that this species persisted. So here I am, driving through the gorgeous purple hills of the Tumut Valley, hills that are actually covered in the noxious weed Patterson's Curse, or that the nursery trade called the Riverina Bluebell. I'm going to meet part of the team that have been working with this species for decades. I really have no idea what to expect, but I'm a little bit excited to smell this divisive plant and to find out how it was finally discovered. So it was discovered in the early 80s by a local naturalist, Tom Wilkinson. He didn't know what it was, he recognised it was different, and Tom had found it because there was some roadworks happening right, right where the grevillea population was. So it, it was a new species which appeared to be yeah, in imminent threat of, of being cleared before it was even described. So they, that galvanised um, people into action and the um, Society for Growing Australian Plants, as it was then, undertook a field trip out to, to the population to take cuttings and some seed to, to rescue the plant. I'm Nikki Tors. I'm a project manager at Greening Australia, based in Canberra. I've been involved in the Grevillea project more than uh, over 25 years, so quite a long time. And uh, I was involved when I'd just come to Canberra, really. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to meet Bob Mackinson at the um, herbarium. And the grevillea itself was, had just been newly discovered and we didn't know very much about it. Um, so I was involved in it really pretty much from the start. As Nikki said, the species was described by Bob Mackinson, a taxonomist and legend in Australian botany. Bob is responsible for authoring most of the grevillea component of the flora of Australia. 
no mean feat when you realise that Grevillea are the third largest genus Australia has. I was lucky enough to chat with Bob by phone during the height of lockdown. This is a species which, despite coming from an area that was settled as early as the 1830s, uh, didn't come to scientific attention at all until 1991, when uh, a specimen was brought to me. And I'm a Grevillea specialist, so I was able to say straight away that it was a new species. The reason it hadn't been brought to scientific attention previously was that it occurs in a very narrow habitat uh, over a very restricted area. So it's basically along about six kilometres of the Gubragandra River uh, to the east of Tiamat. Bob isn't just a taxonomist. He's more a conservation botanist and helped prepare the recovery plan for this species, a plan which basically sets out the actions that stakeholders and experts thought would help recover the plant populations. Because there was so little public land available to conserve the grevillea, the team needed to enlist support from private landholders to find out who might have other populations and also find out who'd be willing to help with conservation. Tumut is a fairly brown area in the sense that um, there's not a lot of conservation activity on the southwest slopes. It's very much a production landscape based on timber, sheep and some other forms of, of cropping uh, as well. And there's a certain amount of local suspicion, if you like, towards uh, a green conservation agenda. And the biggest suspicion was that we were going to start resuming land and declaring reserves and that had to be hosed down quite early. And we put basically about two years of effort into community liaison, getting Nikki onto people's places to do uh, surveys with the permission. And that culminated in a, a community meeting in early 94, I think, which from memory drew about 50, 60 people, which was uh, a large percentage of the population of the valley. And so it was a very successful night. We were very, very happy with it. And people would ask the questions they wanted to ask. I think we finally laid the ghost at that point about uh, land resumptions. And the vibe as uh, Jeff and Nikki and I were driving back to Canberra that night was, it was delightful. It was, it was great. Bob is referring to Jeff Butler from the Society for Growing Australian Plants, who were also part of the recovery team a constellation of organisations, the council, the electricity board, whose power lines ran through the population, national parks, a local tumour environment group, and the Australian National Botanic Gardens. It sounds pretty common now, but in the early 90s, there weren't many precedents for coordinated planning, particularly to conserve plants. Bob remembers the times fondly because, to some extent, they were making their own rules. Uh, there were very few precedents of, of planned plant recovery projects for endangered plant species. There had been a few for animals. So we had quite a constellation of sort of organisations involved and that tends to generate its own energy. And uh, when one organisation puts its hand up to do something or suggest something, the other organisations feel a bit obliged to respond to that and it gives legitimacy for liaison with local landowners, which for us in those years was a, a key concern. The reason it was a key concern was because the team didn't actually know how many plants there were. They just suspected the bulk of the population occurred on private land. The person who had the pleasure of figuring out how many tumor grevillea there were was Nikki Tors, who you met earlier. I was involved in the first surveys to really uh, find out what the distribution of the plant was. At that stage there was two sites known where it occurred. 
um, and the total population was estimated about 150 plants. It flowers best through October, November, so I started in the, the spring of uh, 1993. I undertook to do the survey. I had a list of the landholders along the river. Uh, we suspected it was pretty much restricted to the riverbanks. Um, and so my remit was to survey from right up in Kosciuszko National Park, right downstream towards Tumut and see what I could find. So initially I, it was all on foot. I had to contact all the landholders, gain permission to walk along the banks. In a lot of areas there's blackberry infestation right up to the banks. You just cannot uh, get to the very edge. So I wasn't sure whether it was just blackberries to the edge or whether there was a barrier of blackberries and there was good vegetation along the edge. So my final pass was to get on a lilo and go right from the Kosciuszko National Park down the Gubagandra. Um, and uh, it's a fantastic river for, <laughs> for, for white water. There are people who are down the river, but lilowing was a, a lot of fun. And how many plants did you find? In those first surveys, I found 620 plants across what we call nine different sites, but it was only across about a 4.5 kilometre stretch of the river, so it really is, was quite restricted. And how did you find the experience? Were people happy to have you or were they a, a little bit wary? It was a great experience. I met some, some fabulous landholders, totally welcoming and just really excited when they knew they had such a rare plant on, the, on their property. Um, we had one recalcitrant landholder who in the initial survey refused permission, so I only became aware of uh, a lot of the plants on that property once I'd done the, the lilowing and um, could pinpoint where they were. On that property there was the, the um, majority of the population really, which was um, a little bit disappointing that we we didn't have a, um, a landholder who was as excited as so many others that, to have such a special plant on his place. There's no legislative obligation for landholders to allow access. And while it is illegal under federal and state legislation to deliberately kill or damage a threatened plant, there's no requirement to protect it from accidental damage like grazing or weed competition. Because of these threats and the limited distribution, the recovery team conducted the first translocation in places that they thought it would be safe from some of those threats. They planted where they knew it grew, on the banks of the Gubragandra River, but also in places that maybe weren't as suitable, just to trial its tolerances. Down the track, this turned out to be a pretty good decision but we'll get to that in 2012. For now, let's go back to 1993, when the recovery team planted roughly 200 plants on a public travelling stock route and private land. Here's Bob again. We didn't know much about its environmental tolerances. We knew that it often grew in the, the flood zone of the river, not necessarily with its feet wet, but uh, certainly in a fairly damp position. But we didn't know much about its waterlogging tolerance uh, or its uh, drought tolerance. So we planted at two locations, one an exposed uh, northwest facing slope on private land and one on a fairly sheltered uh, southeast facing winter wet slope. Grevilleas are pretty flexible and in a sense you could plant and forget and we planted enough that we simply accepted that there was likely to be some mortality but that some would get through. We also had a couple of lucky breaks with our initial plant out. We actually got a shout out from Macca on Australia all over uh, which actually resulted in people dropping in later that same day. I just had to throw that in there. Macca's a bit of an Aussie institution. Shout out to Macca. Uh, <laughs> the reason they designed to plant and forget was mostly due to funding. There simply wasn't a budget at that time to maintain the plants. 
From 1991 to 99, the recovery team managed the conservation of the populations. They conducted three other small private plantings. They even got the plant cultivated and sold commercially to reduce risk of illegal collection. And Nikki did a census every five years, the population sitting at roughly 600 plants. Then in 2000, the species got a brand new state-based recovery plan and its very own dedicated carer, courtesy of the New South Wales Government Threatened Species Conservation Act. The dedicated carer, who remarkably has remained in the role, despite a few title changes, has been essential for maintaining momentum on this project. His name is John Briggs, and we caught up as he was preparing for another round of plantings. My first priority would always be to manage the threats for the species in its natural habitat, but with this species it was difficult to do that because most of the populations were right on the riverbanks and some of them were still being grazed that we couldn't convince landowners to cooperate and remove that grazing and have those riparian strips fenced off. And stock love the plant. We've got plenty of evidence where they've got to the grevillea and stripped the leaves off it. And the plants don't like getting defoliated. The recovery from that is slow. In fact, it kills some of the, particularly older plants will die. Because of the changing demographics in the valley, John needed to reapproach some landholders. And he was met with a mixed response. Some were ambivalent. There was still the recalcitrant landholder, but three were enthusiastic. One of them is Dave and Deborah Sheldon, whose farm stay, Elm Cottage, bordered on the last known population of the tumor grevillea. They were a perfect choice because they'd already fenced off the river from livestock, plus done a lot of weed management and revegetation as part of land care. This helped John a lot because he didn't have the budget to pay for that himself. Dave took us by golf buggy down to the Goobrigander River, which he proudly tells us has platypus again. When we first got here, we were all to planting a lot of Europeans. But then as we did more and more development of this property, we actually found that the native plants take off a lot better and they grow a lot better. So we went out and we got more and more. And we've just found that it, it actually fits into the environment. And it, to me, it is vitally important that you plant what's really right for this area. And it will help the whole ecosystem. When we got talking to John, we were encouraged about what it was doing and how it would fit in. So we thought, well, let's give it a go. You know, we've had a lot of the farmers look at us and make comments, oh, you're doing a lot of work there. You're doing a lot of conservation. And we say, yes, we are. And that's what we say to the people. We were told one time, we've watched people do it and it's never worked. Well, we've been here for 17 years. We've had the Tumut Crevillia on the property for now 12 years and to us it is working and we are contributing and we are bringing back endangered species. We're also bringing back the wildlife that wasn't once here. You know, if we can say we had 34 species of birds when we first came and now we've got 140, to me that's a valuable part to this whole ecosystem that we live in, that we're actually contributing. What's been the hardest part of having this species on the property? supplying John with water. 
<laughs> no. Seriously, though, the Sheldons have put a lot of effort into restoring the property, both for biodiversity and for business. And the Sheldons have undertaken the process gradually, starting in areas where they can have the biggest benefits, the riparian zones. Although there was a lot of effort in weeding and fencing, the plants didn't really require too much maintenance after their first year. The success rate of my plantings has been really good, I think probably 95% plus in the recent plantings. The first one, we didn't do any summer watering. The landowner did do some watering, but we were losing up to 50% of the plantings. I've since now learnt that if we do the watering through the first summer, that greatly improves the success rate. And after that, they're usually fine and they don't need any more watering. Up till now, the species seemed a dream to get established. Even Nikki was surprised. I asked her if translocations normally run this smoothly. So I have done a number of translocations of different species and uh, no, they're, they're general, as a whole, they're not this, um, just not this successful. They usually require a lot of care and maintenance and then there's often some special um, some additional disturbance or whatever required to get um, that recruitment. This one has, it, it certainly surprised me in how successful um, the translocations have been. And you think, well, why is this, why is this plant threatened when you know, we can put it here and it, it, just, it just loves it? Um, and I figured that it, yeah, there's, other, there's other pressures at play, whether it be grazing stock or uh, just shading out by competition from other shrubs and things like that. Things for the species were progressing really smoothly. John had also learnt a lot about the species' ecology. He did some trials at home and learnt how to germinate the seed. Cold stratification and coat nicking, by the way. He found that seedlings survive better than cuttings after planting and that there was no evidence of clones or suckering. He also found that the species was self-compatible, which was an accident when he left a seed bag on for 12 months and returned to find lots of seed in the bag. Then, in 2010, a big flood came through and the team held their breaths. They survived that. Um, and so, you know, sort of thought, well, they're very resilient, that's, that's all good. Um, because most of the plantings were down in the flood zone at that stage. Because uh, a lot of the plantings have been done through the drought, so we felt that, you know, they naturally we saw all the plants near the river, it's moister, going to have a better survival rate, that's where we should, should plant. Another serendipitous element of this project was what Nikki learnt when she did post-flood monitoring she noticed something that filled in the last piece of missing information about recruitment. And this is where that 1993 planting that Bob described on the high rocky slope became really valuable. When I went back, I was amazed to see how many new recruits there were from those populations. In, in particular, the one we call the Swing Bridge, which had been planted high up over the river on a fairly exposed, hot, north-facing slope, which seemed at odds with its, its normal habitat down on the river. And we were seeing seedlings 
uh, popping up you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 metres away. Um, in thinking about it, it has a lot of bare ground and the seeds seem to be dispersed by ants. So the, the ants find the seeds, come across the slope and carry them off to their burrows. That swing bridge population was valuable for one other reason. Just two years later, in 2012, a flood hit that exceeded any in living memory. The waters sheeting off the huge mountain catchment of Kosciuszko through the narrow Gubragandra River into the Tumut Valley. I guess I was probably expecting the worst. But, yeah, when you get to you know, side of a disaster, if you like, it's always a bit confronting. Um, not just uh, the impact on the Grevilleas, but just the whole valley floor. You know, the, the power of, of the force of a flood completely changes. You know, the, the loose rocks and scours them completely clean, so there's no moss and, and lichen on it. So it's really quite a raw, a raw scar along the, um, the valley floor. Certainly when I came to some of the Grevillea sites, they were almost unrecognisable. Um, some, and I knew quite specifically where some of the, the biggest plants were, um, and some I could not find at all. They'd obviously been torn out by the roots. Other ones, piles of debris were just over the top of them, um, and there were just no, no young plants anywhere. Um, that was within the flood zone. So yeah, it was quite, it was quite confronting, and the results showed that there was you know, at least a two-thirds lost among the natural population. The impact of the floods brought the wild population to 200 plants. In addition, roughly 80% of the translocations were lost, bringing the total population to around 350 plants. It seemed a major setback, but actually it proved to be a critical learning experience that changed John's strategy entirely. Remember that planting on the swing bridge, high on the rocky slope? Well, again, it proved to have been a good idea. This time, the entire site and all the recruits survived the flood. Seeing what had happened there meant that we felt, yes, it's definitely worth putting them up on the slope. We know they can recruit and grow in that situation. So I guess that's sort of where it really opened my eyes to the fact that it will grow in other places, not just along the river, and it may well have had a wider distribution. And that's why we've then expanded our options for where we might plant future populations. From 2013 onwards, we've moved the translocation plantings mostly above the flood zone. Uh, the ones down on the flat, in the river flat, they grew really well. They're really big plants, produced lots of seed. But actually, in the end, they, we never saw any recruitment down on the river flat. And yeah, the exciting thing is now that we've got recruitment at those, all those translocation sites. You know, with any species, recruitment will generally be episodic and you just have to wait for the right seasonal conditions. So it, it is a bit of a game of patience. It's not going to happen instantly. 
The ultimate aim with this project is, is to have the grevillea maintaining itself at these new sites where, we, where we're planting so that we don't have to come back and keep replanting every 10, 20, 30 years, you know, that you'll end up with a various uh, range of age classes of the plant and it will just, yeah, it'll end up maintaining itself. And the team has started achieving that. At two of the three sites, plus the original 93 planting, there are multiple age classes. He made a good point, though. The technical goal of a translocation is three generations. But unless you're excluding or tracking genetically, it's pretty tough to tell exactly what plants the seedlings have come from, especially when ants move them about and the plants are long-lived. Some of these have exceeded 30 years of age, and they're still going strong. The last census occurred in 2017, and Nikki recorded over 1,700 plants, 750 of them coming from the Swingbridge planting. It's a success, and in some locations, a self-sustaining population. But none of it would have happened without private landholders getting on board. If you're a species that happens to live on fertile, productive land, then you're more than likely on private land. So much of this land up here within the range of the species is cleared um, right to the riverbank. So there's only very small pockets of, of semi-native vegetation left and not all the landowners that have that vegetation are, are willing to get involved in setting that, that aside to have grevilleas planted there. And, and one in particular has, has been most uncooperative, I guess you, you would say, which is disappointing because they had a large number of the original subpopulations. and. Um, when we did the last survey, they wouldn't let us on their property to even do an updated count. I fear there's very few grevilleas left on that property now. Aside from that one landholder, this species has generated a lot of support and a lot of allies. But changing ownership is a big worry. We are relying on the goodwill of those landowners to keep protecting those populations. None of them have been keen to sign any formal um, conservation agreements because they feel a bit threatened by that. But then no one has done the wrong thing and undone what we've done. So I think it's worth taking that risk. And if you know you get people like Dave, Sheldon, while they still own the properties, I think it's, it's good. The challenge will be when there are new owners that they are engaged and, and continue to, to look after those populations. If a new landowner decided to put stock in on their land, they could destroy those populations just in a, in a couple of weeks virtually. One way of providing security to threatened plants is through legally binding agreements. And these make people a bit nervous. People worry about losing land or resale value of the property dropping. But actually, it doesn't need to be like this. You know, it's unfortunate that a lot of landholders have that fear that a threatened species or biodiversity in general on their property is a problem. Um, I think that they are quite compatible. Often, particularly with the threatened species, they only occupy very small parts of a property. They're often on parts of the property that are not particularly productive. So. Um, I think that people can protect things on their property and not lose the main incomes off their land. Shouldn't need to be a th big threat to them. And there's potential now through the Biodiversity Conservation Trust to get incentive funding to help manage those sites. Uh, and there are various levels of agreements that people could enter into um, regarding that, from just simple management payments to signing up to sort of more permanent conservation agreements and getting annual payments in perpetuity. David Sheldon, as a business operator, 
and a conservationist is probably best place to comment. I asked him if he thought the project had been successful. I think it has. I'm encouraged by it. Um, you know, you look when we first started in 2008 and it's now 2020 and we're really starting to see some results. So how many plants are on here now? John tells me we now have over 320, I think. I, I would like to say, I said to John, the aim is 500 minimum. That's what I would like to see here. And then I think that in this smaller area that we actually give to the Chermak Grevillea, if we can get that up, we're actually looking at longevity. You know, we saw one today where I think it had three or four seedlings. Now, if each plant does that, 500 becomes 2,000 before we know it. And what do guests think of it? They're fascinated with it. They're fascinated with a lot of the things that we've actually developed here. But the Chermak Grevillea attracts them because, as they say to me, it's almost like a plantation. You've got that many on there. And I said, well, they are endangered. And so we've got to give them every chance in the world to survive. And I think every landholder, if they can do it, no matter where they are, if they can contribute to bringing something back to life, it really does give you a sense of purpose. This weird smelling plant that, yeah, it's, re it's really pungent. <laughs> Wasn't done with surprises. In 2000, eight plants appeared in a totally unexpected place. A backyard in the town of Gundagai. 50 kilometres from the Goobragandra population and in a woodland, nowhere near a waterway. And once again, it relied on a few serendipitous moments. It, it was a complete surprise for that population to turn up. It's come up in an area that was an old uh, the house paddock, um, so there was possibly not much grazing happening. So we suspect that maybe how it's managed to persist there uh, historically. Uh, when the landowner took over the property, there were no plants there, but they, they came up after a fire. There's a power line through his property, and there was, a, there was a fire started from the power line, and it sort of cleared all the grass away, and they've responded to that, and up came the plant. Then the son of a family friend saw it and figured out what it was, the Tumit Grevillea. Except it was prostrate, a ground cover, but with the same flowers and leaves. The landowner was very uh, excited about it and very proud of having that. And we've actually done two translocation plantings there now, so we've got 40 new plants added to that population. So we're bolstering that up to some larger numbers now. This species has really surprised me. I've learnt that sometimes translocations work really well, but it has taken couple of decades to figure out exactly how to get the plant to respond, what the ecological needs are, and it's still tenuous. It still relies on private landholders being willing to conserve this plant on their property. I asked Dave why he thought more people don't get on board with conservation. Look, I would hate to answer that question. I would say a lot of things about Australians, we don't like change or we don't like something new coming along or having our eyes opened. Uh, but once we embrace it, we go for it. And I think that's the best way to, to say that. And as you can see, we've embraced the Tumut Grevillea. With your shadow as the sun it warms your core Your blue eyes on the blue sky capture so much more You don't worry about the clouds for the rain is welcome too do -do -do, do -do 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 -do. Every morning the sun rises for you do -do -do, do -do 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 -do.
Circle. Yeah, that oh, was it Austin awesome Powers where he's trying to reverse it in the hall in the corridor. Oh yeah. <laughs> great, 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 great. Thanks again for listening to Plan Heroes. It's been really fun making this story for you. If you have any questions, please contact us at the Plant Heroes website. Next time we're going to be learning about some mitigation translocations. That's those done because there's a development going to clear the species or impact the species. There's a lot of these happening now, mitigation translocations, and it's important to talk about it. So I'll chat to you then and you can learn all about Pimelia spinescence.